You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Um, can I get you all to stand one more time uh, as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 7? After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a place of cedar, while the ark of the God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men's hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of his entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, so O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if it were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods, 
before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have, been, have become their God. And now, O, now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these th good things to your servant. Now to be pleased to bless this house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessings, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Can we bow for prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have provided today. We thank you for the love and prosperity you have given and shown us and the great country that we live in. Bless our time here this morning as we learn more about your true glory and what it means to be followers, true followers, to realize the power and the glory that you hold. Bless Azar here this morning as he shares your word and lessons of scripture and keeps our hearts and thoughts focused on what's important in our days to come. We love you, Lord, and the son you sent to wash our sins clean with his blood. In your blessed name, amen. Let's continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, tomorrow is an important day in the history and in the life of this nation, of this country, Canada. Lord, we have, constitutionally speaking, we have a sovereign, the queen, and we have a prime minister who is elected to rule and direct this country. And yet, Lord, we in this room believe that you alone are sovereign, that all authority and all power belongs to you. And so, Lord, we commit tomorrow's results to you. We commit that whoever is elected to lead the new government, to be the Prime Minister of Canada, will be a man chosen by you, and he will submit to you. And God, that you would use him and the members of the new parliament to lead this country according to your will. Father God, we acknowledge and accept your sovereignty over this nation. And so, Father, we give the results of our election tomorrow into your hands, knowing that everything that comes through tomorrow will be according to your will. And Lord, we pray that as believers, as Christians, we will not shy away from the political process, but be an active part of it. And perhaps the most active we can be is on our knees as we lift up our government, whoever that may be, before you. And we ask you to lead them according to your will. So, Father, we commit our nation and our leadership into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the book of Samuel, studying the life of David for a few months now. Chapter 7 of the book of Samuel, second book of Samuel, is one of the pivotal chapters 
in David's life. Ever since David left the sheep that he tended for his father and moved into the court of King Saul, he has either been in flight or he has been in fight. Either he has been fighting for the Israelites under the command of his king, or he has been fleeing from the very king that he is serving, who also happens to be his father-in-law. He is either in battle or in flight. His life has not been a life of peace by any stretch up to this point. And yet, in all of that time, we see that David's love and zeal for the Lord is unparalleled and unquestionable. And yet, at the same time, in the life of this mighty warrior of God, we see a weak man. We see a man who often submits to the circumstances that he is afraid in and acts out according to his own wisdom or folly. We often see a man who is tempted by his own weaknesses and succumbs to those temptations. And that's a part of life that we can affiliate ourselves with, associate ourselves with. And yet, in the life of this same man, we see a complete, utter reliance on God. We see that David, a weak man like us, is reliant on a fully strong and fully powerful God. David's desire to honor God is so strong that any time he steps out of the will of God, his first priority is to make his relationship right with his God. And that requires repentance, and it requires seeking God's forgiveness, and David never shies away from that. His life up to this point and in the days to come will always remain a life of continuous submission to God's authority in his life. Up to this point, up to the end of the sixth chapter, David has accomplished three things, just referring back to Pastor Terry's message last Sunday. The first thing David did was he, he drove out Jebusites from the city of Jerusalem and established Jerusalem as the capital, the political capital of the kingdom. The second thing David did was that he drove out the Philistines outside the boundaries of the United Kingdom. He pushed them back into the Philistine country. And the third thing he did was that he brought the Ark of Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem, establishing Jerusalem as the religious center of the kingdom as well. Pastor Terry also mentioned that for a Christian, what David did in those three accomplishments is in fact a reflection of what Jesus does in the life, does in the life of a believer. As soon as we appoint him as sovereign in our, in our lives, Jesus overcomes the, resi the residency of sin in our life at that point. Second, Jesus also overcomes the devil and all the attacks that the devil has leveled against us. And third, Jesus helps us to see that we are made to worship him alone and nobody else. We are made to worship him with a fear of God instead of fear of man. And so we move into chapter 7 this morning. And we start with these remarkable words. After the king was settled in, settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest. We don't read that about David's life before we get to chapter 7. He has received rest. And the concept of rest, perhaps, if we go back into our imagination, takes us probably to a place of serenity of some kind in our, in our own lives. We can look back at our life at a time when 
The battles that we had been embroiled in, the struggles that we were in the midst of have all vanished. They have all ended and we are at peace. The trials and tribulations that have plagued us for years or decades have now been addressed and dealt with. All is at rest. This is the state that David is in. There is no more battles. There is peace in the kingdom. And yet, in this state of rest, we see David in a state of discontent. And the discontent comes, as we read in the chapter, that as David is in his palace of cedar, he realizes that the Ark of the Covenant sits in a tent. And to him, that creates a discontent. You know, I wonder if sitting in his palace of cedar, David actually remembered the cave of Adullam that he lived in. You'll remember that in 1 Samuel, it tells us that once David had fled from Saul, he found this cave and all the men that were in debt or in distress or were discontented were coming to him. And he lived in this cave for many, many, many years. And this cave actually is a, is a system of caverns, and some of the caverns are big enough to hold 200, 300 people in each of them. And yet it seems that sitting in a cedar palace, David is remembering the cave. I wonder if in his time of prosperity, David is remembering his time of poverty. I wonder if in, in his comfortable bed in his palace, David is remembering the time when he had to sleep on bare ground with a, pillow for a, with a rock for a pillow. Or in his days of peace, if he's remembering all the days of war that he's been through. I wonder if he's remembering how far he has come from all the running he has done. And you know for sure that he remembers who it is who has brought him this far. There is a constant recognition of the work that God has done in his life as you look at David's life. You know, if you, if you extend this picture of David in the cave of Adullam and then living in a palace of cedar, it is very much a picture of a believer, a human being who's born into sin without any hope of reconciliation with God is like living in a cave, a spiritual cave of depravity. And yet when we accept Jesus Christ and we accept his, his, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, we are transformed into new creation. It is as though we are taken out of this cave of spiritual depravity and put into the, the palace of the king. It is as though we are spiritually dead and made alive in Christ. It is as though we are the worst kind of sinner who has now been turned into a saint or a spiritual pauper who is now a royal priesthood or an object of God's wrath who now becomes a child of God. Anyone here today who has accepted Jesus Christ will know exactly what that feels like and what exactly that means. You know, I wonder if at times, even after becoming the king, David went back to that cave just to take a peek and remind himself of where he'd come from. I don't know if you ever do that. Do you ever remember your life before Christ? For me, it's, it's a music album that is kind of a hallmark 
of that time. And you know, it's not, it's not a Gaither's homecoming or a Matt uh, Redman or whoever. It's Pink Floyd's The Wall. <laughs> because I remember every time I hear that album or watch the movie, I remember the spiritual state of my life. And I thank God that I am not there. And so for me, that is my cave of adulam. I wonder what's yours. And if you're still in that cave, you know God has made a way. He has made a provision, and his name is Jesus. But carrying on, David's heart is filled with gratitude for God who has taken care of him in all this time. And out of his, out of his gratitude comes this holy discontent. And so he presents this desire to Nathan and says, I'd like to build a temple for the Lord because I sit in a palace and the Ark of Covenant sits in a tent. And David is not expecting the response that he gets from God. God says no. God says, he reminds David that in the 440 plus years that he's taken the Israelites out of Egypt up to this point, he has never asked for an upgrade to his tent. He has never asked for a renovation project to be taken, taken up to turn the tent into a temple. It is because God is interested in the relationship with his people. He is interested in his connection and the worship of the hearts of the people, not where he resides. You know, interestingly enough, th this whole conversation about a temple versus a tent has an interesting application for our church as we're in the midst of a building project process, if you will. God is not interested in building facilities. God is interested in building a church. And repeatedly, we've heard from our leadership and the mandate that's been given to the various, various committees. It is this, that the purpose of this new facility is to build a people who are completely surrendered to God. It has nothing to do with what the size or the structure or the shape of this building looks like. It has to do with the hearts of the people sitting in this room and how surrendered they are to God Almighty. That is the church that God is interested in, in building. A church is not built when we take a facility and slap a big sign on it that says church. A church is built when sinners who've submitted their life to God and are in surrender to Jesus Christ come together and worship him. This can happen in your workplace. It can happen in your home. It can happen in a group of two or three people or it can happen in a multitude of 2,000 people. What matters is the heart of the worshiper. The church is not a facility. It is the body of Christ. Now after God says no to David, he does tell David that his son will build the temple of the Lord, which would end up being Solomon, who would do the same thing. You know, it's interesting. We sometimes question, why did God say no to David? It was a noble cause. David had a noble cause in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. And his motive was right. He wanted to honor God. And yet God still said no to him. You know, there are times in our lives when God says no to noble causes. There are times when we are presented a choice or an option and it honors God. 
and yet God still closes the door. And the only way we can understand is, it, is that that particular option, that particular noble cause is not in God's will for our life. It is easy when we have two options, one extremely bad and one extremely good. It's easy to pick. Option number two is the better option. The challenge comes in when we have a great option on one hand and a great option on the other. A great noble cause on one hand and a great noble cause on the other. And both glorify God and both honor God. So which one is it? Is it option one or is it option two? And that's where discernment comes in. That's where, for us as a church, the challenge comes in. What is the best option that honors God and is in the will of God for our church? You know, if, we, if we're on this building project and God says to us, go ahead and build, and we don't, we are in disobedience with God. And similarly, if we go through everything that we need to do, and God says, don't build, and we still build, we're in disobedience with God. It's not an easy decision, and that's where the challenge comes in to us as a church family, to seek God and to seek His will for our church. We've already talked about the fact that God is interested in worship, in true worship. He's not interested in structures or anything like that. He's not interested in places of worship. He's interested in people of worship. So if we define worship, for example, as an outpouring of words and or deeds out of extravagant love and devotion for something or someone, it is what we do when we have this extravagant love for something. You know, in the heart of every human being, there's an innate desire to worship. We find objects or people to worship. We find people and objects that we can consider worthy for our adoration. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. And in your life, if it is not God Almighty, then you have already replaced him with something else. Don't kid yourself if you don't subscribe to a God on, on the throne of your life. You already have someone else on the throne of your life. We build shrines and we build churches to whatever it is that we are worshiping. You know, here's a couple of, couple of places of worship. A soccer stadium. I tried to make out the flags on the left or on the right side, but uh, I don't think that's Canadian flag. Or this one, next one here. This is a concert, a U2 concert. And all the little dots on the screen are people. Or the next slide. It's the MTS center with the Jets playing. That is a worship center. I tried to, I thought of putting in a picture of Air Canada center with the Leafs playing. But, but first of all, I'd like to come back here next Sunday. <laughs> and second, I thought, you know what, there's probably a whole lot more prayer going on in Air Canada Center than anywhere else. And if the Leafs ever win the cup, it will be because of divine intervention. <laughs> I'm a Leafs fan, so I can say that. 
And I just made a few Jets fans friends as well. You know, in our Christian context, we use the word worship and mostly in terms of music. Mostly in terms of music. We call the folks who come up here and play the instruments and lead us in singing, we call them the worship team. I think that's a wrong assumption. I think worship is not specific to music. We should have been, when Kevin came up and did the announcement, why didn't we call him worship announcer? Or why don't we call the ushers worship ushers? Or people who do other work around the church, why don't we call them worship something? Because all they're doing is serving the Lord and glorifying God in everything they're doing. So worship is not about music. Not all worship is just music. Worship is not also tradition or ritual. I grew up in an Anglican church that was steeped in Anglican tradition, hundreds of years old traditions where you know, we had the Book of Common Prayer and uh, the, the liturgies that were part of the, of the services. And it was great growing up with that structure. But when following the tradition became about obligation, worship went out the door. Tradition is good, but if you're following it because it's tradition, then it's not worship. So worship is not ritual or tradition either. Worship is not location specific. We already talked about that. And worship is certainly not entertainment. It's not entertainment for you, and it's not entertainment for me. And when we come into a church with the expectation of what I am going to get out of this worship service, we come with the wrong expectation. Because what happens at that point is that we look at the worship leaders and we say, they had too many hymns, or not enough hymns. Or we look at the worship team and say, they had too many new songs, or not enough new songs. Or we listen to the preacher or the speaker and say, the sermon was too long or the sermon was too short. Actually, no one says the sermon was too short. <laughs> but it doesn't meet our expectations. And so worship is not entertainment, and it is not about us. Jesus gave us a picture of what worship means to him. You know, in the Gospel of John, there's an event where he met a woman, Samaritan woman at the well, and after a conversation, after Jesus had con confronted her and said, you know, you've had a number of husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband and so on and so forth. Uh, she said to Jesus, you, you seem like a prophet. And, uh, but you guys, you Jews worship in the temple. We Samaritans worship at the mountain. Uh, what's going on here? And Jesus goes on to explain this. And he said, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the standard that Jesus sets for true worship. So what does true worship look like in that case in the life of a believer? Well, first, first and foremost, true worship is all about God. It completely focuses on God. If you are competing, or if you have a competition going on in your mind or in your life where God is on one side and something else is on the other, you're not in a state of worship. True worship puts God at the center of everything you're doing. All our thoughts, all our deeds, all our faculties, all our senses, all our energies are focused on worshiping God. 
The primary purpose of our worship is to glorify and honor God. And so we worship him with reverence, with attentiveness, and with the right purpose, which is to honor him. True worship is also consistent with God's character in this book. True worship elevates nothing above the God of the Bible. And true worship holds God in supreme place. So anytime we see an expression of worship that is somehow not consistent with the character of God presented in this Bible, I would challenge you that it's, true, it's not true worship. True worship is also done with a humble and a grateful heart. We see that in, in the second chapter, in the seventh chapter, in verse 18, then, the King David, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. So he goes into the tent where the ark is kept. He is the king of the United Kingdom of 12 tribes. And he goes and plops himself down on the ground and sits before the king, the true king that he submits to. And he is thankful and his humility and genuineness are evident in that gesture. True worship and genuine worship is when we present ourselves to God with humility. And our humility comes from remembering what God has done for us. And fourthly, true worship is intentional. You know, if you're like me, you're always focused on the next big thing or the next shiny thing. And so it is an act of will for me to submit myself to God and worship Him. You know, we can summarize by saying that true worship is, is not an act. It is not an act or a series of actions or series of activities. For a believer, true worship is a lifestyle. You are in a state of worship when you wake up till the time you go to sleep. You're in a state of worship whether you're at work or at the grocery store or with your family. Because in everything you're doing, you are seeking to glorify and honor God. We've already alluded to the fact that we worship what we value. And that's, that's the second point of our, of our morning. This sovereignty of God is evident in David's responsive prayer. As David starts to respond to God, as he sits down in humility before God, he uses the word, O sovereign Lord, seven times in a span of 11 verses. And when you read that passage, you cannot help but understand and get the picture that David believes God is sovereign. And he believes it with his whole heart and his whole being. God is sovereign in his life. As Canadians, we, we understand what a sovereign is. Our sovereign is the queen. The dictionaries tell us that a sovereign is a supreme ruler, one whose supreme authority and power is permanently established over others, one whose authority cannot be questioned, and one who has ultimate power over everything. That really doesn't sound like the queen. It really sounds like God. God is the ultimate sovereign. And he is the one that everything bows down to. The Bible establishes the sovereignty of God right from the first verse. In the beginning, God created. And in those five words, the Bible establishes the fact that our God is bigger than time and space. He is bigger than all creation. 
He is bigger than the farthest reaches of the galaxies and farthest reaches of the universe. And he is bigger than anything imaginable. He is the creator of everything. There isn't anything created that wasn't created through him and by him. He is the giver and sustainer of all life. And he is the ultimate authority. The sovereignty of, a, of God is not a question. It is not an abstract idea. It is not a discussion that we can have and decide whether it's true or not. It is an absolute fact of life that God is sovereign. R.C. Sproul once said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. We believe in a God who is absolute sovereign over everything. David gets this. He gets this. As he responds to God in his prayer, he gets it. And he understands this and he repeatedly acknowledges that God is his sovereign. David understands that though he may sit on the throne of the kingdom of Israel, the true king that he submits to is the Lord Almighty. God's authority is an absolute fact of life. I think I've said that about five times. As human beings, ironically, as human beings, we can accept or reject, acknowledge or deny God's sovereignty. But the interesting thing is, whether you accept it or reject it, it doesn't matter. Why does it not matter? Because what we think of God's sovereignty does not have any effect on the fact that he is sovereign. Where does it affect us? It affects us in how we live. So when we acknowledge God's sovereignty, we live a life like David's. We live in submission to God, we live in God, under God's authority, and we do everything to honor and glorify him. When we don't acknowledge God's sovereignty, we live like a king named Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard his story. He was one of the kings in the book of Daniel. He was the greatest emperor that the Babylonian Empire had ever seen. He was the emperor. He had 127 provinces, I think, that he, he ruled over. And yet, he was a very arrogant man. He was a very arrogant man. And God provided a number of opportunities for him through Daniel to see that God was the true sovereign and Nebuchadnezzar needed to humble himself. In every single instance, in every single instance, Nebuchadnezzar would witness what Daniel was doing, tell Daniel, yes, your God is true, yes, your God is real, yes, your God is sovereign, but would not submit himself under the authority of God. And so God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by driving him out into the forest and he lived like a wild animal for seven years and it was at the end of seven years, he looked up to the stars, and in his mind, he recognized God as absolute authority, as the sovereign over the universe. And in that instant, his kingdom was restored to him. You know, th there's a verse that says, in the end times, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. There will be people who will bow their knees willingly, who've already done that. But there will also be people who will have to be humbled by God, but they will ultimately bow their knee. So whether you accept or reject the sovereignty of God affects how, you, how your life turns out. 
God is the ultimate authority. You know, perhaps the greatest sin committed by the modern church is this, that we have humanized God. What do I mean by that? We've taken the attributes that are specific to God and we refuse to talk about those in the church. We've taken the elements of God's character that are unique to him and we do not preach on that. We do not talk about the supremacy of God. We don't, do not talk about the absolute supremacy of God. We do not talk about the absolute holiness of God. We do not talk and preach about the absolute judgment of God. He is the only one qualified to be a judge and we don't teach on that. Instead, our churches have taken God who is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. He's the God of the universe and we've reduced him to a two-bit counselor. We've taken the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand and we've reduced him to being treated as a cosmic vending machine. We've taken the savior of the world to be our personal assistant. Our churches are raising a generation where the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot, applies. You know, if you have a bumper sticker on your life that says God is my co-pilot, you have a problem. God needs to be the pilot in your life, not the co-pilot. If you speak to a pilot, they will tell you that it's, it's the pilot who does the actual work. The co-pilot assists the pilot or takes over when the pilot is busy doing something else. If God is your co-pilot, you have a problem. And that's the kind of generation that is being raised in churches today. We've reduced the word of God to a mantra for being prosperity and, and health and wealth gospel. We've taken this message that God has given to humanity and we've reduced it to a formula for you to have your best life now. You know, if I have my best life now, what hope do I have for eternity? I think my best life is going to come when I take my last breath. This is just, I don't know, prep. The best life for a believer comes when we take our last breath in this world. And yet that is not the God we are preaching or heard, hearing being preached across the nation, across the continent. God is sovereign. David's prayer is bathed in absolute humility. Even when he is reminding or repeating what God has promised him about establishing his kingdom, about establishing his throne forever, it is not a demand. It is not a demand. It is not a televangelist event where he's picking out promises out of context and throwing them at God and saying, you said you would do it for me, now do it. It is bathed in humility. And if you read David's words, there is not a shred of arrogance in any of his words. In fact, he says this, so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless. It's not a demand. It's a request. It's a request rooted in humility. And so we see that the life of David becomes a pattern for how we approach God in our life. It is to be done with humility it is to be done in truth, and it is to be done to the only sovereign in our life. You know, the question, the question begs to be asked, who is sovereign in your life? Is it 
Jesus Christ seated on the throne of your life. And even if you're a believer, it is a question worth asking yourself. When you wake up, when you go to work, when you come home, when you're with your family, when you're watching television, who is sovereign over your life? Who is the king that you bow down to? Are you bowing down to him and worshiping him in humility? Is he your only focus or is he fighting for that throne? There is only one throne in your life. The question is, who is seated on that throne? And once you answer that question, I think the second question is, how do you worship him? Is it an act that you do from 11 till 12.30 on a Sunday morning at 201 Skirfield? Or is it a lifestyle that you live day in, day out? Let's pray. Father God, we are, we're in your presence and we want to lift up, lift up our hearts to you. Lord, each and every one of us just wants to shout out and acknowledge that you are the sovereign who sits on the throne of our life, that you are the God that we have all our allegiance to, that you are the one we follow in everything we do, and that you are the one we worship in everything and all parts of our life. And yet somewhere in the back of our minds, we know that that may not be entirely true, that there are challenges and struggles and competing and conflicting priorities that take over, that there are other loves in our life that displace you on the throne of our life. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness for that. We ask you for forgiveness for that. We ask you, God, this morning as well, that if there's anyone present here who has not, who has not placed you on the throne of their lives, who has not come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, who has not come to acknowledge that they're a sinner and they really need Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray that your Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and bring them to that decision. And for those of us who have acknowledged that, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our lives and that with every day that passes, you will be more in control, that I will be less and you will be more, and that you will be firmly seated on our thrones and that we will worship you in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.